If you have your Bibles, I would like to encourage you to join me in Exodus chapter 20. We have been studying the Ten Commandments, and here is what we know. They are a declaration of who God is. The children of Israel have been in bondage for many generations, and miraculously, God freed them from Egypt. And now, as it were, he is introducing himself again to his chosen people, and he is revealing his nature and his heart and his expectations by communicating law and order. What we also know about the law is that the New Testament teaches us that it's a school teacher revealing to us our sinfulness. It teaches us just how sinful we are. It's a mirror that when we look into, we see our sins. It exposes our sins. And all of this points us to our desperate need for a Savior that is Jesus Christ. And this morning we arrive at one of the Ten Commandments that is only four words long. And I know that you are going to pat yourself on the back for having fulfilled this. Yet, when we apply the full understanding of it, all of us will be guilty. In Exodus chapter 20, I'll read just verse 13. You'll wonder how can you read four words and then take 30 minutes To preach a message on it, I say to you, you wish it was only 30 minutes. Here's what we read. Thou shalt not kill. Let me just take a second. How many of you have ever premeditatedly murdered someone? Is there anyone? Anyone? So we could just close in prayer. We can all be dismissed. If you did raise your hand, uh, we do have a sheriff out front. Give me just a second. We want to get him so he can see this. I think we all grasp when we read, thou shalt not kill, that universally this commandment is accepted. As I've studied through the Ten Commandments, I have become aware that some of them stir controversy. People don't like to stop and think of the first commandment, which rules out all other gods. They're polytheistic in their thinking, pagan in their theology. They don't want to rule out any other god, but the one true god. There's some controversy there. A little hard to understand the fourth, where we're talking about a day of rest and establishing a divine pattern in our lives. People like to indulge themselves just a little bit and and to think of thou shalt not commit adultery and all of those implications, it creates somewhat of a controversial stir. But universally, everybody kind of gathers around and thinks thou shalt not kill is a pretty good idea. I mean, after all, even in America in 2022, homicide is still a criminal act. The Bible teaches us this as Jesus is speaking in the New Testament. He's talking about the devil and he says this in John 8, 44. Ye are of your father, the devil. And the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Jesus says of himself, I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus tells us that the devil was a murderer from the beginning and he says of himself that he is the life. We can deduce very simply from that that we can be no more like Christ than we are when we are life-giving and we can be no more like the devil than when we are murderous. This goes all the way back in history into the Garden of Eden, back to Genesis chapter 4, when Cain kills his brother Abel, and God speaks to him and says to him, Now thou art cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. God takes punitive action all the way back in Genesis 4 against the first murder. It will be God himself after the flood when he reestablishes his covenant in Genesis chapter 9 where he will institute what we would know as capital punishment. He writes, whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. God's legislating in that verse that the appropriate punishment for those who unlawfully put others to death is death. In other words, human life is priceless. There is no earthly equivalent to it. When we study this commandment carefully and come to understand all of its implications, though it is no only four words long, we find perhaps that there's no commandment that is more blatantly defied than this one. For all of our hatred of murder out there, and that's good, we placate all of the murder that goes on in here. But the scripture, and particularly the words of Jesus, Do not allow us to hate murder at a safe distance. We'll have to scan our own hearts and what will be revealed to us is that there is a universal need for forgiveness. Universal indicates that we're wrapped up in it. We desperately need the mercy of Jesus Christ. Why is murder bad? Here's a truth. God created man in the image of God. If we're going to fully understand all that this law implicates, we've got to go back to the beginning and understand an important distinction. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, the the account of creation given by the Holy Spirit to Moses as an eyewitness, he says, and the Lord God formed formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. God breathed life into the nostrils of man. That is very distinct from the way that he gave life to every other creature. Have you ever been in conversation with somebody in close proximity and been able to smell their breath? Anyone? Yeah, it's, it's, it's not pleasant. Close talkers. And they're close enough to where you can maybe feel the breath hit your face and you can certainly smell the breath as it hits your face and you think to yourself, this is way too intimate. This is way too near. This is way too close in proximity. I'm saying that to you so that you comprehend something about the creative process. God breathed life into the nostrils of man. What that communicates is certainly nearness in proximity. 
that communicates an intimacy. That is a distinction between God giving life to man and all other creatures. Why? Here's a foundational tenet of what we believe. It's communicated in Genesis 1.26. And God said, let us make man in our image. This is an inter-Trinitarian dialogue. Communication. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. God establishes man as created in his image, breathes life into man and both male and female, and gives them dominion over all other creatures. It is a simple study, but in Genesis chapter 1, you'll note in verse 3 and 6 and 9 and 14 and 20, that God says, let there be in the creative process. But when we get to verse 26, there is a change of gears from let there be to let us make. And the next phrase in there is in our image. God created man in his image. Both male and female created he them. They are both mortal souls. This certainly speaks to equality, does it not? This certainly speaks to the equivalence in God's eyes of male and female. Also clearly defines two genders. God is doing this from the onset of Scripture. Human beings are not toys. They are not mere objects. They are immortal beings, both male and female. Which indicates that someday this dirt carrier, this clay carrier will certainly pass away. But the immortal soul will either live on in eternity in heaven or in the torment of hell for all eternity. Humans are distinct in that they are created in the image of God. It is not then surprising that our enemy, the adversary, the devil, the prince of this world, would work diligently who was a murderer from the beginning through our educational system and through what is called science to try to wipe out any vestige that we are created in the image of God. It's an all-out assault on truth. The modern skeptic in that way is, is problematic because of it. When you do that, remove the truth that we are all created in the image of God, inevitably human life is devalued. The world tells you that you are no different than an animal. Science or the educational system wants you to grasp that just death will happen and you'll be eaten up by worms and that's it. But inside, instinctively, Romans tells us, written on our hearts, there is an awareness that there is something more. What is that something more? What that more is, is that we are created in the image of God. Mankind is created in the image of God, male and female. That's foundational truth. And so we arrive in Exodus 20 and God says, therefore thou shalt not kill. In the Noahic covenant, when he institutes capital punishment, he lays it down. It is because man is created in the image of God. Thou shalt not kill. How many of you like steak? Okay. Chicken? I mean, every one of you dirty dogs is waited in a 30-car deep line at Chick-fil-A. You say, now hold on a second, Pastor. What you seem like you're going to say is thou shalt not kill means I cannot eat chicken. Because chicken was killed. Listen, I'm going to be honest with you. Some of the restaurants that you're eating, that is not even chicken. 
That is just processed stuff. It's probably sawdust and a lot of other chemicals. Nothing died to give you that except your insides. Thou shalt not kill. That word kill in the Hebrew is intentional. It's unlawful, premeditated, immoral killing of another human being. So we've got some problems we've got to scripturally work through here. Let me help you grasp something. Of the 47 uses in the Old Testament of that word, that word is never used to describe killing in war. Never. That word is never used to describe the slaughter of an animal. That word is never used to describe ending somebody's life who was invading your home. The scripture is incredibly careful in how this is communicated. God cares deeply about our understanding of this. Listen to this from Exodus 22 too. If a thief be found breaking up, and be smitten that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him. If someone is invading your home and you take them out, what is being communicated here, there shall no blood be shed for him. It is a violation. It is a defense of property. That's what God says. Now here's what we know from Romans 13. This is speaking explicitly of the institution of government. And here's what we read. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he, that government institution, is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. He is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Thou shalt not kill. 47 uses in the Old Testament. Not war related. In fact, Romans 13 indicates that this allowance is really not for the cessation of life, but for ultimately the protection of life. Not war related. Not self-defense, home defense related. Not to the slaughter of animals. But it is willful act. God is even so careful that he communicates between the intentional act And the accident. Here's what we read in Exodus 21. He that smiteth a man so that he die shall be surely put to death. No gray area. And if a man lie not in wait, but God deliver him into his hand, then I will appoint thee a place whither he shall flee. But if a man come presumptuously upon his neighbor to slay him with guile, thou shalt take him from mine altar that he may die. But there's a clause in there that if a man lie not in wait, there is a refuge appointed. What is that talking about? God goes so far as to declare this in Numbers 35. But if he thrusts him suddenly without enmity, or have cast upon him anything without lying of weight, or with any stone wherewith a man may die, seeing him not, and cast it upon him that he die, and was not his enemy, neither sought his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the slayer and the revenger of blood according to these judgments. Now, all I'm saying is this, and we could really break down some Old Testament law, that's not my intention. What God is saying in that way is if you murder somebody, you are worthy of death. But it may be that you thrust someone through suddenly. I don't know how that would happen. I'm sure there are ways. 
Or you cast a stone, and in casting the stone, it lands upon somebody that you did not see, and it kills them. You can get to the city of refuge where your case will be judged or determined. And if there was no intended harm, and this was not previously an enemy, and this was not an intentional act, you stay there until the high priest dies. There's a whole lot that goes with it. What I want you to grasp is this. God is very careful in what he's saying. Thou shalt not kill because man is created in the image of God. This is different. This is an immortal soul. This is a different being. Thou shalt not kill. I'm not talking about self-defense, home defense. I'm not talking about the just cause that the government would carry out as executor of wrath and vengeance for evil activity. I'm not talking about the slaughter of animals. I'm not talking about these accidental occurrences that there is still punitive action for and steps must be taken, but thou shalt not kill. Because man is created in the image of God. Let's just take some deductions from this. What we know then to be true is only God has the right to give life and to take it away. That's what scripture establishes. Job declares that life belongs to the Lord and it is his to give and it is his to take away. So consequently, the one who murders another human being is guilty of assuming the right and the privilege and the authority that belongs only to God. Guilty of rebellion against God and attempting to put himself in the place of God. Now, I know what you're thinking because I think the same thing. I am a pretty good person, and one of the ways I know I'm a pretty good person is I've never murdered anybody. I've probably come close, but then again, I don't even know if I'd know how to do it or if I'd have the guts to actually go through with it. I've never murdered anybody. I'd venture to say, and we established it earlier, unless you're lying, it'd probably be something worth lying about in a public space. You've not murdered anybody. And so we begin to think we're pretty good people because after all, we've never murdered anybody. But we're about to round a corner and it gets pretty savage here because Jesus steps in and he delivers truth that is layered under this mandate about the heart behind the letter of the law, and in that we will find that we have failed. Jesus liked to use this phrase, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. You see, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking and he's communicating and establishing basically life principles of the kingdom of God. This is what it would be like, this is what it should be like in the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees are there, and the Pharisees are just like you, and they're just like me. They're pretty proud of themselves because they've never murdered anybody. But Jesus says something in the presence of the Pharisees to his followers. He says this, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So my righteousness actually has to exceed the Pharisees who spent their every waking moment upholding the letter of the law. Now I would wonder, how can I exceed the righteousness of a Pharisee who has never murdered anybody in not murdering anybody? And to communicate just how I would do that, Jesus continues to teach and he takes it up a level. Here's what he says. You've heard it said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. 
But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Uh-oh. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Now there's a lot there, right? I know what everybody settles on, Raka. I have no idea what Raka is. So one time I said, rock on, am I going to hell? No. But I do know this. Jesus said, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisee, whose full-time job is upholding the letter of the law. So if I'm going to exceed the Pharisee and not murdering anybody, how do I do that? And Jesus says, well, here's how. I say to you, if you are angry with a brother without a cause, you are in danger of the same judgment as though you had murdered somebody. And if you say to them, Raka, or you say to him, thou fool, you are in danger of hell fire. So in essence, to be focused on the mere act of murder is to miss the intent of the commandment. Jesus says we have to eradicate hatred from our heart. Something more fundamental is at stake here. The sinful anger and the wrath that lurks behind the deed is just as blameworthy as the deed in the eyes of Jesus. I always need help with passages like this. Anytime you say the word raka or you think, so if I say thou fool, I am so perplexed. Somebody a lot smarter than me who wrote, his name was Charles Spurgeon. He's called the Prince of Preachers because he preached well and he wrote well. He said this, God takes cognizance of the emotions from which acts of hate may spring. And calls us to account as much for the angry feeling as for the murderous deed. Words also come under the same condemnation. A man shall be judged for what he shall say to his brother. To call a man Raka or a worthless fellow is to kill him in his reputation. And to say to him, thou fool, is to kill him as the noblest characteristics of a man. Because that word, Raka, and those words, thou fool, betray an attitude on the part of the name caller that the world would just be a better place without those thus named. Because when we speak that, we declare our heart as though we view somebody as less than being one in the image of God. And when we view them as being less than the image of God, that is the beginning of a murderous spirit. If we were truly honest, that strikes at the heart of true racism. When you don't think a group or an individual is like you in the image of God, you think of them more as a derogatory classification. That is this anger and heart. That is this murderous spirit. It strikes right at the heart. John says this in 1 John 3.15, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. The stakes cannot be higher than that. Do you sense the severity in what Jesus is saying? And John, the beloved disciple, writes, Have you ever harbored anger towards somebody? Uh, yep. You ever let a brooding resentment sit on the inside and heat you up? You ever blasted somebody on the way to work or the way home from work or while you're at work? 
You ever thought to yourself, the world would be a better place if that person was gone? You ever wished harm on somebody else? You ever rejoiced over someone's misfortune, put them down in your heart and mind? Then your heart has known murder. That's what Jesus says. And when we really unpack all the full implications of thou shalt not kill according to Jesus and according to John, the beloved disciple, what every one of us are learning from the school teacher that is the law, as we look into the mirror that is the law, is man, if I ever thought I was good enough to make it to heaven on my own, I am desperately lost in my sin. There is no possible way for my righteousness to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisee until I pause and I realize the true sinlessness of Jesus Christ. All of the doctrines of Scripture are interwoven together like a tapestry. And when we go back in the Old Testament and we establish these foundational tenets of Scripture, they amplify and they lighten what we know to be true about Jesus and what we learn in the New Testament. I am woefully sinful. I don't have to maintain the Ten Commandments in order to garner salvation because if that was possible, the rich young ruler or the Pharisees would have gotten it done. Jesus said my righteousness actually has to exceed theirs. And then he says that if I have anger in my spirit without a cause against a brother, I am guilty and I'm worthy of the judgment. I need salvation. I'm not going to just work that off. I'm not just going to do good deeds and erase that. I'm not going to get baptized in a tank. I'm not going to give enough money to eradicate that from my life. But Jesus, born of a virgin, who knew no sin, tempted in every single way that we are tempted, never capitulated to sin, willfully died on the cross, took my place, died there for me, shed his blood so that my sins can be washed clean through his blood. And the Bible says, if I confess my sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Jesus was more righteous than the Pharisee. The only way my righteousness can exceed the righteousness of the Pharisee is for me to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the only way for me to do that is to confess and repent of my sins and accept him as my savior. All of the Bible is a tapestry that is woven together. Ultimately, what I am saying to you is, you are a dirty, rotten, scoundrel sinner worthy of hell because you've been unnaturally or too naturally angry without a cause toward a brother. You've blown up in traffic. You've harbored resentment. You've wished ill. You've had these thoughts just like I have. It proves our inability. It proves our sinfulness. And God is saying to us, that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came. He is so concerned about our relationship with us. He's not talking about a vague sensitivity to imagined offenses. He's talking about dealing with real offenses and squaring things up with people. Getting things right with people. In Ephesians, we read this, let all bitterness and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Do you comprehend that he holds us accountable for what we say? And to the gossip 
who is slaying somebody's reputation, to the slanderer or to the evil speaker who feasts on communicating about other people. They are finding in their heart a murderous spirit and none of that is okay with God. Why? Man is created in the image of God. Male and female created he them. Thou shalt not kill because God has created man in his image. And Jesus said, I know you heard all the old timers say, thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, if you've even harbored anger in your heart towards a brother without a cause, or you have spoken words and you have denigrated him, I say to you, you are also guilty of judgment. It's dramatic. Our world which declares universal acceptance of this law, thou shalt not kill, is woeful in their adherence to it. And I think it's evidenced most perhaps by the tragedy that is abortion. We oppose abortion. We oppose abortion because God does. We oppose abortion because Scripture does. You see, the Bible is clear that human life begins in the womb. Not at birth. It's God who allows conception. In Genesis 17, 19, here's what we read. God is speaking. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, speaking to Abraham. And thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. God said, you are going to have a son. Sarah laughs, she's barren, but God is in charge of conception. And here's what we read a few chapters later in Genesis 21 too. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. In the mind of scripture, in God's revelation, conception is as crucial in the creative act of God as the development of the baby and the birth of the baby. The fact is, it begins at the beginning, which is conception. David the psalmist wrote this in Psalm 139, 13. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. In verse 15, he says, My substance, and that is an intriguing study in and of itself, was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. From conception to the forming in the womb to the end of life, God is the authority. He is the power behind all of it. Never forget, he said to Jeremiah, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. All human life, all human life, whether they look like you or not, is precious in the sight of God. And it is fact, it is evil to think of any human life as disposable. I'm not just talking about the unborn, the elderly, the sick, the disabled. He's the creator of life. He is the rightful owner of life, the decider, the determiner of the length and the breadth of days. But when you decide you're going to throw out the fact that he is a sovereign God that we are accountable to and that man is created in his image, you lose the foundation for all human rights. And I would say to you, this is fact. We realize that we live in a world that is doomed. We could also establish that scripturally. 
So the impetus upon us is to reach as many people with the truth about Jesus Christ to see them saved as possible. We could even take a step back and we could establish that the involvement of a father is one of the key integers in stopping abortion. Do you realize that the statistics tell us that the involvement and the investment and the presence of a father cuts dramatically down promiscuity in the next generation? There's a million ways we could slice this that are all rooted in the foundation of Scripture. It's the fix. And I would say plainly to you this. Our job is to reach as many people with the truth of Jesus Christ, which is the only way of salvation, so that they might have eternal life. We defend the unborn, the disabled, the sick, the elderly. We realize that God is sovereign in the authority over life. But Jesus said this in Matthew 10. Fear not them which kill the body, but are, able, or but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. No doubt about it, death's a terrible thing. But especially so when it plunges somebody into a Christless eternity. So Jesus says, fear not the first death, that physical death. That's not the one to be most feared. It's that second death. It's that spiritual death, which we must seek to prevent men from entering into. Ultimately, I could say to you, and I know that I'm not in an adverse situation here, though we're certainly sending this out in an adverse situation to declare what I believe the Bible says, but I would come back and I would ask you this, how pro-life are you? Because if you are not a witness for Jesus Christ and you are not speaking the gospel truth to a lost and dying world, you are not concerned with that second death, which is the one to be afraid of, that spiritual death. How pro-life are you? Because if you're really pro-life, you're sharing the gospel message of Jesus Christ. You're telling people the truth about their sins and you're trying to get them to receive the gift of eternal life that is offered only through Jesus Thou shalt not kill. I get it. Piece of cake. I haven't murdered anybody. But why is God so careful about it? Because you and I are different. We're not a beast of the field or a fish of the sea or a fowl in the air. We're not just some creature that crawls around. We're created in the image and likeness of God. He breathed life into man. That's proximity. That's nearness. That's intimacy. And so he says, thou shalt not kill. This isn't a flippant command. This isn't slaughtering animals. This isn't the just cause of war. This isn't home defense. This isn't an accidental thing. This is God being very careful to communicate this. And Jesus layers on and says, but I'm saying to you, the anger that reigns in your heart, the gossip and the slander that slides out of your mouth, the maliciousness that reigns, I say to you, your heart has known murder. And we can sit in here and despise it on the outside and placate it on the inside. And we can declare that we're pro-life and, and be mute when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a terrible thing for us to fail God's expectations in this. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. 
We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.